Here we go, February the 25th, 2018, lecture discussion number 12 on the book of Joel. I had a bad week last week, as most of you know. I'm getting old and tired. I've had good advice by Supper Dave, gave me good advice. I can't read my own handwriting. Part of it was the bright lights. That's my excuse. And I could not tell the difference between fourth and fifth. And Dave told me always to put the numbers. And um, I failed to do that last time. But I need to let you know. The greater lights. Oops, moon. See, I can't even spell moon. It's not creatures. Living souls, cattle, man, beasts, not necessarily in that order, okay, not in that order. So, anyway, it's going to get worse before it gets worse. Just get ready for it. It's going going fast. But I have to do that because I'm on the Internet. I never had to worry about it before. I could just pretend I was still smart. Now I've got to prove it every week, which is not, not working. Okay. Perhaps you have perceived that our beginnings here in the book of Joel can't quite extricate itself from Genesis 3. And to be fair, Genesis 1 through 4 is omnipresent in Scripture. If you're not finding Genesis 1 through 4 especially Genesis 3.15, then you're not looking. So be ready for that. Expect a constant path back to Genesis 1 through 4, because most roads that weave throughout the Bible are generated by Genesis 1 through 4. You can trace them back there. So it's not the least bit surprising that I have a prophet, Joel, and that his prophecy would contain the key elements of Genesis 1 through 4. In this case, Genesis 2 and 3. And hopefully everyone has finally succumbed to my relentless clubbing of you, my pummeling. And the re- you have now grasped the recognition of the woman being the first to repent. The woman is the first to repent of her unbelief. The first what to repent? Human being to repent of her unbelief. That is a key piece of information. Because it's not necessarily assumed. Why did she do it? What was the process? But again, hopefully I've established that and I'm going to keep bludgeoning you, the beatings will continue until I am certain that everyone knows that. If you can come out of Genesis 3 with that piece of information, why she was renamed Eve, the mother of all living. So she went from woman to Eve, mother of all living, because she was the first to repent of her unbelief. And again, I say that uh, it's mostly established because I haven't quite got anywhere near to where even halfway to what it is. There's a great deal to investigate with regard to uh, the renaming of the woman or Eve's process, if you will, especially its impact on the witnesses. Who's witnessing the repenting of her unbelief? Is it Adam? Well, duh, yeah, but not didn't impact him. Who did? Who was impacted by the fact that this woman repented of her unbelief? The angelic host, exactly right. For example, there you have the timeline now. The woman's repentance from her unbelief and her testimony, resulting testimony against the serpent, because the repenting of her unbelief came before she testified against Satan. And then we have the creation of the lake of fire, or the revealing of the lake of fire for sure. The fallen angels saw and heard all of that. How did it impact them? The unfallen angels saw it too. There are extraordinarily intelligent, powerful beings watching this woman get renamed 
because she repents of her unbelief, testifies against the wisest creature ever made. They see her covered with the skins, the blood. They know what that means. They saw the creation of the lake of fire. So there's a lot of stuff there. That's not, not even, uh, it isn't even a beginning. Anyway, last Sunday, I'm, I'm told that I have to identify the lecture number because we have people follow along on the Internet. They insist on these kinds of things, and I try to comply with a good attitude. Lecture number 11 last week. <sighs> and I should probably mention uh, right here that the notorious Supper Dupper Dave is having computer problems. Isn't that true? Don't speak aloud. People will thank you. Yeah. He nodded his head. Are somebody in that part of the congregation pretending to be Supper Dupper Dave did? So he's claiming to have computer problems if indeed he exists. Here's a question. Those of you who took math, did you ever do imaginary numbers? Do imaginary numbers exist? Question. Math question for today. Where was I? Supposed computer problems. Think about that. Supposed computer problems from supper day. See where I'm going here? Use your phones to look up duppery just for fun. You can skip the rest of the sentence. The rest of the, uh, <laughs> that's happening. On the Internet, they are stopping and looking up duppery. All right, back to the subject. Last Sunday, I'm saying that for you people on the Internet because we are having uh, computer problems and a lot of our lectures are, are uh, in transition, to say the least. When is this going to be fixed? Do we have any idea? Do we care? Are we getting any pizza from these people lately? Any donuts? Are they, they're throwing anything our way. Not happening. So I do see pizza there today. Do we have Kentucky Fried Chicken? Do we? We had Kentucky Fried Chicken Sunday, one Sunday. You remember that? That was glorious. Fifteen buckets of Kentucky Fried Chicken. It was fantastic. I went home with nine buckets. I'm kidding. That's a joke. But there was a good, it was a good day. Not as good as Prime Rib Day, though. That was pretty darn good. I have to... Can you tell I've had no sleep all week long and it's going to keep getting bad? Uh, back to the subject. Last Sunday, we began to compare the refusal to repent at Revelation 9. So Revelation 9, 20 through 21, I have a refusal to repent. And obviously, I'm going to juxtaposition that with the woman who's the first to repent. I'm going to go back to where the first repentance is, and I'm going to look at this refusal to repent by billions at Revelation 9, 20 through 21. So the renaming of the woman and Revelation 9, refusing to repent side by side. The first to repent was renamed the mother of all who would live. So what are we going to name the ones who refuse to repent? The key question, therefore, becomes, why does all of this humanity, this mankind in the tribulational period, refuse to repent of their unbelief? What do they need to convince them, is it possible to convince them? Hebrews 3.12, beware, brethren, lest there be any of you, and I'm sorry, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. In departing from the living God. Let me reread that. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. What is he saying in Hebrew? That if you have an evil heart of unbelief, you will depart. What's he describing? Who's he describing? Unbelief departs from the living God. Evil manifests itself through unbelief. And I think the inverse. What is the order? Which is head most? Evil or unbelief? Which comes first? Luke 12:46. Christ will cut the wicked in two and cast them 
in with the unbelievers. The lake of fire is filled with unbelievers. Obvious question. What is it that they don't believe? Ask another obvious question. Why is unbelief in the person of Christ called evil by Christ? Why does he do that? This is an important question for Christians to resolve. I'm told all the time, I just don't believe. God is not going to condemn me for unbelief. And I say to them, the Bible is filled with scripture that tells you that unbelief in Christ is evil. And will always show itself to be evil. It never not is evil. And Revelation 9, 20 through 21, reveals billions of people refusing to repent of their unbelief. And from this, we went to the 150 days of the Noadic flood. <laughs> I have 150 days of the Noadic flood, or five months. So that 150, and we went to the 150 days of 9, 5, and 6 of Revelation, where I have 150 days or five months of the suspension of physical death. So, that's where we have been pretty much. And to repeat what I submit is the defining contrast of this uh, certain accordance between the flood judgment and the tribulational judgments. You see, this is the flood judgment and this is the tribulational judgment. It's the first woe. So there is some kind of continuity here. He's repeating these 150 days so that you can see the relationship between the flood and the tribulational judgments. And so the, the defining contrast is why is there a difference between the Noadic flood and, and the tribulational judgments of Revelation? By this I mean I had death by drowning in the flood, didn't I? And in Revelation, do I have death by drowning? No, I don't. What do I have? I have a different kind of death, if you will. Death seems to be death, but one the process of it. Drowning in the flood. In Re Revelation... 1911 through 21, or actually 1917 through 21, to be more specific, more narrowed down. So I have Genesis 7, 17 through 24, death by drowning. Revelation 19, 17 through 21, different kind of death. What is it? How do they die? Billions die. Who kills them? Jesus Christ. Why does he kill them? He's ending sin. He's ending the wickedness. If he doesn't end the wickedness, then the wickedness continues unabated forever. Is that good? God is good. He's going to end wickedness. I will tell you, the death in Revelation 19, 17 through 21 is instantaneous. It's a consuming or a consumption death. They are consumed. Some will, will submit they dissolve or they liquefy. The blood is certainly there, and there's something for the birds to eat, but it is very, very fast. Immediate. The wicked who perished in the flood were suffocated. Their breath, let me say that word, breath, 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 I can't say that enough. Their breath was taken from them. Water replaced their breath, or the breath, in their nostrils, in their lungs. And repeating the central point from Lecture 11, what our physical breath is a symbol of our breath of life, our living soul. When you go outside with the dogs at 3 o'clock in the morning and you go, <sighs> and you see the fog that you create, the moisture and the instantaneous freezing, because we live in Alaska where it's dark and cold and miserable, don't visit us. <clears throat> Makes us mean. What can I say? Okay, summers are fantastic. Um, our physical breath is a symbol of our breath of life, our living soul. He tells us that. And more on that later. Let me go this direction for just a second. God says he won't flood the earth again. Who was I talking to about this just a few minutes ago? Ah, Nick. Somebody willing to admit. It's really wonderful. First in the buffet line. Sorry that there's no Kentucky Fried Chicken. 
God says he won't do it again. He won't flood it again. What do you think when you read that? He gives you a rainbow. He says, I won't flood it again. Here is the spectrum of light. What do you think? Oh, good. He's not going to flood it again. That's good. Yay. Not going to flood it again. Is that good? Why do you think it's good? What's better? Dissolving people instantly, leaving a pile of flesh and blood that's just muck. Are drowning them. Which one do you want? He says he won't do it again. What does he do it in, what does he do instead is the real question. I also pointed out that within Genesis 7, death by drowning was this introduction of time. That's very important that you know that. Death by drowning typically will introduce time into the dying process. All of mankind that was drowned at Genesis 7 had time. I shouldn't say all general statement, but I believe that it was, that's mostly true. At a minimum, they're going to have minutes to struggle and gasp for their breath, which is a symbol of their soul. So that's what God is doing. And the primal question here, the first of importance, why did God inject time into the deaths of all of these people? Clearly, he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't do it in Revelation 19. But he did it in Genesis 7. So why time? Why did God inject time into the deaths of all of these whose very thoughts were only evil continually? That's what the Bible says. I have people who are only evil continually, and God gives them five minutes. Why do you do it? I asked that last, night, last week, and most of, if not all of you, quickly deduce the thoughts of God, which is our assignment, right? We, as we move along through this brief time, our lifespan, and look at, it's that fast. Look at me. I just can't believe how fast it is. It's astonishingly fast. And here I am, 20 minutes later, 25 minutes ago, I was in high school. Now look at me. That's how fast it goes. I had somebody very wise tell me that time goes by faster when you get older. And I see us, all of us my age and close that we're all going like this. It's just extremely fast now. I don't even know what to say. But why did God inject time into the deaths of all of those whose thoughts were only evil continually was the question. And most of you quickly deduced what he was thinking. And our job is to try to think like God or think like Jesus Christ. Figure out how he thinks and try to think like him. Think his thoughts after him. That is the scientific method or supposed to be or used to be. And again, we are told to think like Christ in as much as we are able. He's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent God. So we're only going to be able to understand something. He gives us a whole Bible of why he did stuff and why he did it in the order he did it. Try to figure out how he thinks and then expunge those kinds of thoughts that are not his. Is he ever going to? Here's my prayer. Please give me a Mercedes Benz, a Janice Janis Joplin song, right? Is he going to give me a Mercedes Benz? No. Is he going to give you one? No. Somebody gets one. Did God give it to him? No. Don't think his, don't think that you can control him like some kind of organ grinding monkey. You can't. Don't think like that. He doesn't think like that, and he's not going to reward you for being, what's that word? I get in trouble for saying it, so I won't say idiot this time. Don't do that. He doesn't, he wants you to be wise to think and to think like him. So ask, why does he say what he says? Why did the Creator God do what he did? And what or is the order? What way did Christ do them? And so why death by drowning? The taking of breath over time. 
Time became shorter, but it was still present. And most of you figured out last week that the time is important because time is almost always mercy in Scripture. So that's an introduction of mercy. They're getting an opportunity to use that time. That's the last time they have in their physical body. And he gives them some to do something. And... So, but let me try to illustrate it better in case there's a need for a little bit more clarity. I thought I'd give you the testimony of John Harper. Where can I put John Harper? I've probably got to think back 30 years ago. I came across John Harper. And if any story can explain the element of time in the death by drowning, it is the true story of John Harper. You have seen a movie about John Harper. He was not in the movie. Probably all of you saw the movie. It's shocking to think that Hollywood would leave out John Harper from the movie that he's supposed to be the central figure of. But they did. Don't be surprised by how corrupt Hollywood is. And I, as you know, I'm not predisposed to do these kinds of things, these stories. But I thought I'd make an exception. I think you'll understand why. I hope I can do John Harper justice. I doubt that I can. I haven't yet. Again, I came across John Harper maybe 30 years ago because of Harry Chapin. Do you know who Harry Chapin is or used to be? Died in a car accident of a heart attack a Volkswagen. He was a songwriter, singer, and he had this incredible song, Dance Band on the Titanic. And I would, I'm teaching high school at the time, I believe, I have to think what grade I might have been doing. Um, But um, I started to talk about Dance Band on the Titanic, and I brought in my record player and my album, and I played Dance Band on the Titanic. And they all fell asleep, pretty much like every Sunday. See, I've repeated, I can't get out of this, but uh, at least I gave them something to rest by, which is my goal here every week. And I still have that album. I still have it. The song was very impressive at the time to me. So, the reason I bring up the dance band on the Titanic is because the band was reported to have chosen to die on the sinking Titanic. And I wish to know why. Why did they choose to die? They played Nearer My God to Thee. That is an established truth. Some will tell you it's not. But I know that it was. Because I know the testimony of the people that I believe. And they played near, my God, to thee as the cruise liner filled with water. The very vessel, as you know, you know the story, of which it was proclaimed that even God couldn't sink this ship. And I always listened to that and I thought, why would anybody make such a boast? Not that God caused the event. He did not cause the event. But who would think it wise to declare that man could construct something that the omnipotent God of creation could not prevail against? I remember Larry Bird saying that Jesus couldn't guard me, basketball player. Read that story. Why would you say something that profoundly stupid? But that's human beings. We're proud Arrogant. That is us. Have you seen the universe? No, you haven't. It's trillions and trillions and trillions of pieces all moving. You cannot see the universe. So the question becomes, who can see the universe? Yeah. You're going to say that he can't handle a ship. Or a basketball game. But I digress, as I usually do. The answer to why did the band play Nearer My God to Thee was because John Harper told him to play it. 
the answer to why didn't the band enter the lifeboats, again, John Harper told him to play Nearer My God to Thee, to the very end. And they submitted to John Harper. They knew he was right. Every band member. Think about that orchestra. Every one of them. Compare it to our band. It's, never mind. A little bit dysfunctional. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> okay, it's really... <laughs> oh... More rest, huh? Not going to happen. But why did they do what John Harper said? Who was John Harper? And most would think, well, he must be an officer on the Titanic, and he was not. He was just a passenger. John Harper, you see, was on his way to be the pastor at Dwight L. Moody's church in Chicago. Moody, I believe, passed away. And uh, they were looking for a new pastor. And at the time, uh, Moody Bible Institute, that's how it's known now, was considered the greatest church in the United States. And Harper had previously, in 1910, spent three months at Moody, and he was returning. He was supposed to come earlier. He was going to get on the... uh, can't say the word. The other boat, not the Titanic. Help me. Lusitania. Thank you. All I could do was Louise. Who's Louise? Jeez, what Louise. I've always wondered who she is, but she seems to be omnipresent in my household. But he was going to come on Louise, forget it, on that other boat. And he wasn't, but he got delayed. And he had accepted the church's invitation to be its next pastor. And he left his post in a church in London. He'd begun in Glasgow. He had a large church in Glasgow. He was a Scotsman. And he's traveling to the United States now in April 1912 by boat, a passenger liner by way or in the waters of the North Atlantic. And it's the HMS Titanic. And he has his sister and his six-year-old daughter, Nana. And he's on the Titanic. John Harper. And he was a widower. His wife had passed away earlier. 39 years old was John Harper. And as you know, it was on Sunday, April the 14th at 11.40 p.m. The Titanic hit the iceberg and Harper then uh, wrapped his daughter in some blankets. He knew what was going to happen. He knew very fast. And he handed her to a crewman who placed her into a lifeboat. And she would be an orphan at age six because John Harper had made a decision. And he knew that his daughter would not have him as a father for the rest of her life. You see, in 1912, as opposed to 2018, Men were willing to sacrifice their lives for their children and their wives. They didn't hesitate. It was not a, there was no other thought. And they also did so for the wives and the children of other men. It's what they did. 1,517 people drowned. Thirteen hundred and sixty were men. That's what men were like, 1912, in a crisis. Seventy percent of women and children were saved. Twenty percent of men. Eighty-one percent of women in second class lived. 10% of the men, 90% of the men in second class died on the Titanic. In case you're wondering, the first class, the wealthy, 94% of the women and children survived of the wealthy. All the men died. No wealthy man made it. The wealthy men stayed on the ship. That was men. 
men perished. The rich chose the cold, dark water. And the captain, as you know, is known to this day for ordering women and children first. And everyone obeyed because there was honor. There was doctrinal understanding. There was obedience to the precepts of Scripture in Christ. The, the percentage of Christians, devout Christians, very high. And you can make the application, I hope you're doing that, to our country today. It's not good. The rotting of the culture of this country is plain and obvious and before us and will get worse. It's got to get worse before it gets worse. That seems like a joke half the time, but this time it's not. It has to get worse. The Bible says it does, and it will. Anyway, John Harper, after saying goodbye to his daughter and sister, he went on a mission. He had a little bit of time, and he knew what to do with it. He immediately removed his life jacket. He gave it to a man who was unsaved. He asked him, are you, are ye saved? I can't do a Scottish accent. And the, and he heard no. And so Harper replied, then you're going to need this. I'm not going to need it. Next, Harper began rushing about the deck shouting, women, children, and the unsaved into the lifeboats. That is what he is reported as saying for hours. A couple hours is all he had, maybe three. Women and children and the unsaved into the lifeboats. He wanted the unsaved to live. If you were not saved, or if you were saved, stay on the boat. Go down. You are unsaved. Get in the lifeboat. Imagine that. And no one knew at the time if anybody would survive. So he's putting them into the lifeboats. Why? He doesn't think they're going to survive. They're going out in the darkness in the North Atlantic. It's freezing. What are the chances anyone survives? They could be out there for a month. What was he trying to do for them? The unsaved are going to get what? More time. Everywhere he ran on that boat for the hours that he had, he beseeched the panicked to turn to Christ. He had the orchestra play, Near my God to thee, so the unsaved who remained on the doomed ship could sing that song over and over and over again. That was his idea. That's why they did it. We're going to keep singing this song because what's happening? Near my God are we. His only thought was to preach salvation to the lost. He gathered groups of people everywhere he could. He, grew, he just kept doing it, knelt and prayed for their souls to be saved over and over again. He sought out any who were unsaved, gathered them together and prayed with all of them. He's trying to get them as saved as he can. It's his plan. It's his goal. It's his singular focus. He's going to die doing it. And eventually, as it did, time began to run out at 2.40 a.m., the Titanic slipped beneath the surface, and 1,000 people now, including John Harper, fought for their physical lives. So 1,000 people on that ship approximately, maybe a little more, did not go under immediately in the undertow of that ship as it went down, or weren't trapped on the ship. They were on the decks, and they jumped, and they got away. So there's at least a 1,000 of them, maybe a little more, and they're fighting for their physical lives, and John Harper is 39 years old in the frigid cold. Now, we have fallen into water that is frigid cold in this country, in this state, and we know how difficult that is, and they're all there. Almost all men. And John Harper, in the numbing dark water, no hope to survive. But what did he still have? He still had time. Again, at least a thousand were still alive. And Harper found some floating wreckage. And he clung to that. And so he continued screaming over the wailing of the dying. 
he would scream, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. He was obviously an incredibly powerful man. Huge. He had the ability to speak without amplification. Huge, powerful, projecting voice. He's in the water screaming, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. He'd admonish all within his range. He'd tell them, prepare to die. Are you saved? If any replied no, he would swim towards them on the wreckage, explaining quickly how they could live forever. Towards the very end, John Harper came across, uh, came by a young Scotsman, Aguila Webb. And he said to him, is your soul saved? And Webb answered, no. I am not. And Harper responded, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And Webb recounted that Harper then floated away out of sight in the darkness because Harper no longer possessed the strength to control his direction. He was freezing to death. <sighs> Tough story. Shortly thereafter, the waves brought Harper back to Webb. And Harper yelled, are you saved yet? And Aguila Webb said, no, I cannot say that I am. And Harper yelled last time, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And very quickly then, John Harper, having no energy remaining, disappeared beneath the waves. Aguila saw him die. And now Aguila Webb was alone. Now obviously we know about Aguila Webb because 1,523 people went in the water, 1,517 dead, six came out of the water. Gila Webb was one of the six to be pulled out. He was a young man clinging to wreckage. He obviously was, again, physically very powerful to do that. The weak didn't survive this. And he is quoted as saying this. I heard John Harper call out to anyone and everyone. And John Harper called to me. Is your soul saved? As he sank under the water. And there, alone in the dark, in the freezing North Atlantic, Aguila Webb cried out to Christ to save him. And he was John Harper's last convert. The White Star Line in England famously, and I'm sure you know this, posted outside its office a board. I should write it on the board, but I'm running out of time. A list of names. Not a list of the steerage class, not a list of the second class, not a list of the first class. There's only two categories, two classes, two lists, and it said known to be saved and known to be last, lost. Known to be saved and known to be lost. It's really famous. You can still see pictures of that list. Likely the White Star Line did not understand the true meaning of their posting. Known to be saved, known to be lost. They had no idea what they really were saying. John Harper knew the difference between known to be saved and known to be lost. And John Harper knew time. He knew there was time, time to cry out to the only one who can save you. And John Harper used the time to do his job. Now, without doubt, I have placed John Harper into our discussion of Genesis 7, haven't I? Of why water? Why hydrogen and oxygen? Why death by drowning? Why, think like God. Why did God do that? Why death by drowning? Why the flooding of the lungs? And the facet that I think that defines it. Now, there are others. There's the living soul, the breath. There's the angelic host. How they're affected by God doing this. But the facet that I believe that John Harper knew 
primary reason is time. Drowning takes time. John Harper had time. And he used it. He knew it. We are all, if you want to use the metaphor of the allegory, drowning in this darkness. Look around. Watch the news. Some will choose to perish in sin. They are the known lost. Others will reach for the hand of Christ. And they are the known saved. No one of us will make it out of the darkness physically alive except the last generation, the generation that is raptured. I'm hoping that's me. It's not looking so good. There's a dark piece of glass back there, and I can see me. Oh, dear. (laughs) Other words came to mind. No one's going to make it out of the darkness physically alive. Some will be known saved, written into the Lamb's book of life. There can be, in my view, and I didn't do John Harper justice. I didn't do it. There's no better modern micro example, in my opinion, of the flood of Noah than the sinking of the Titanic. And I'm submitting to you that the situation repeated itself on a small portrait. Drowning is always drowning. Studying drowning is always a valuable thing. And that takes us, as we're shutting her down here, well, maybe not. How many pages I got? Oh, another eight or nine. I could keep going. Revelation 19, 17 through 21. So let's look at what he does instead of drowning. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. Oh, my goodness, I have an angel Again, angels are part of this process, fallen and unfallen, and this angel is standing in the sun. Now, some people will say, well, he's standing in the sunlight. If all he was doing was standing in sunlight, why would it be in the Bible? That makes no sense. He's standing in the sun. So why is he standing in the sun? Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice. How loud a voice? Who is he talking to? He's standing in the sun. Who's hearing him? Saying to all the birds that fly in the mist of heaven, where's that? Is that the atmosphere? He's an angel standing in the sun. Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. This is contrasted with the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the supper of the great God. So start putting those pieces together, that, that contrast and comparison. That you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and, all, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against them. What are these guys thinking? Against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from him, I'm sorry, from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Death by drowning, death by this sword that comes out of the mouth of Christ. You're not going to drown him again. Now, in order to get a hold of this, it's necessary to search and find the complementary passages. Revelation 9.15, for example. We'll do this next week. Revelation 1.16, Isaiah 11.4, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. All of that's for you folks on the Internet. You can get ahead of these folks here. For example, those are just the the examples that I'm giving you now. And those bring crucial information as to the nature of what this sharp sword really is. The two-edged sword of God, what it is. I'll give you uh, Isaiah 11.4. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. 
he slays them with his breath. Start thinking about that. Second Thessalonians 2.8. That adds that Christ slays the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth. Make the comparison. What do I have in Genesis 2.7? Breath of life. What do I have in Revelation 9 or 19? Breath of killing. Breath of death. The breath of life is now the breath of death. As the dust was formed in Genesis and into the nostrils of the formed dust was breathed the breath of life and the man became a living being, a living soul. The breath of life did that. Here in contrast, the breath of God is a sword. It's a consuming force. No time this time. You see that? It's not going to flood again. It's going to use the breath. And it won't be the breath of life. But it's still the breath. The breath of God blows through the bodies of those who have assembled to kill God. Fascinating behavior and mindset. And what we call the terminally insane And why were these not given any time to repent? Trick question. They were not given any time to repent at Armageddon because they had taken the mark of the beast. Then why is the mark of the beast the point of no return, to use a euphemism, the decision that's irreversible? Why is that? Repentance is obviously attached to the mark of the beast, isn't it? If you have the mark of the beast, you have no repentance. Why? Those who willfully choose Satan and his seed, the Antichrist, the seed of the serpent, who worship the beast, who worship the Antichrist, do so knowing that they will not repent of their unbelief in Christ. How are those two stuck together? Why is it that they do not believe? I'm sorry. What is it that they do not believe about Jesus Christ? They obviously believe they can kill him. What is it that they will never believe about Jesus Christ? Let me repeat the question. How much time were they given to repent of their unbelief? Well... The requirement of the mark of the beast does not occur until the midpoint of the tribulation. Tribulation seven years, so they got three and a half years. After the seven seals, after the trumpets, after the two woes, they got all of that. That's a lot of stuff. Once they took the mark, done. After three and a half years of incredible evidences, the world is given unimaginable insight into the spiritual realm. They see and hear angels. They watch them overhead. They know there's a spiritual truth. They got it all. Proof after proof after proof that Jesus Christ is God. It's overwhelming. It's inescapable. And still they choose the mark of Satan. And eventually, Revelation 19, 17 through 21, Christ takes back his breath. It is, after all, his breath. It's his life. You have his life in you. He's the one that makes you live. And he takes it back. He can take it if he wills. And I always think about stuff like this. What's the defense, the countermeasure? Of Christ doing this, they've got to have a committee. I can I think of the military army generals of the beast. All oh, they're all in a room around a table. It'll be something from Costco, much like we have. They have donuts, maybe croutons. I don't know. See, I'm weird, aren't I? I try to conceive of the military contingencies in the meeting, and I can see a guy standing up. Okay, we got Christ. That's This is God himself, creator God, and he can instantly remove our breath of life. We got that, we some counterintelligence, he's going to, we got read it, he's going to take the breath of life from us. And he's going to do it to all of us simultaneously. 
So what's our next move? What are we going to do? Obviously, they didn't believe that he could take the breath of life from them, did they? They believed something was going to protect them from him taking the breath of life. What did they think was going to protect them from him taking the breath of life? Obviously, the mark of the beast. Final thought for today. Everyone cheers. You know, the audience on the Internet, the vast Internet audience, needs to hear you cheer. It's in, Yeah, nicely done. Sit closer to the microphone next time. <laughs> I can always count on one family to help me out here. <laughs> oh, golly. I forgot my Worcestershire sauce today, didn't I? Revelation 13:15. The Antichrist was granted to give breath to the image of the beast. Read that carefully as you can over the week. The Antichrist has the ability to give breath to the image of him. And the Antichrist's breath to the image of himself is the catalyst to worldwide worship of Satan, the taking of the mark. Mankind obviously believes that the beast has a replica or some kind of method that is somehow similar to the breath of life. Why would they believe that? And God makes it perfectly clear that he can take away the breath of life, his breath. At the flood of Noah, he uses, again, water, hydrogen, and oxygen. He says he won't do it again, so they know he's not going to flood them like last time. What's he going to do? Revelation 19, the valley of Jehoshaphat, he does it with his own breath. It seems quite uncomplicated that he is telling somebody something. Who's going to see him do this? Who witnessed the flood from afar? He's telling them something. It's not just mankind. It is the fallen angels. He's letting them know that I'll, I give the breath, I take the breath away. Why does he do that? What is the meaning of that to the angels, to the guys in the wagons trying to kill Christ? It means they're physically dead. What does that mean to the angels? Did they believe, the angels believe that he wouldn't do it? Did they believe he couldn't do it? 